listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the InQtel podcast. I'm your host, Vishal Sandesera, and on today's show, we'll be talking about synthetic biology. I have two guests in with me today. Um, we have Dr. Kevin O'Connell, who is a senior member of technical staff here at InQtel and is also a member of BeNext, one of our open source IQT labs focused on biology and the proliferation of biodefense. On the phone from Waltham, Massachusetts, we have Eugene Chu joining us. He's a partner on the InQtel investment team, and he's focused on investments in the life sciences and in artificial intelligence. Gentlemen, say hello. Hi, this is Kevin. Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for your time, gentlemen. It's great to have you here. Uh, just to reiterate for our listeners, today we'll be talking about the rise and importance and significance of a little something called synthetic biology. Before we dive into all the particulars of our conversation, what is synthetic biology? So synthetic biology is the culmination of many years of research in molecular biology that is, um, that is resulting in what's going to become the next great manufacturing platform uh, of the 21st century. Synthetic biology, I view synthetic biology essentially as really the, uh, the convergence of engineering and biology and the ability to engineer biology in and drop down to perhaps a dollar base pair. Today it's uh, you know, less than 10 cents a base pair. And that enables, uh, along with the ability to uh, assemble those uh, DNA fragments into long sequences, enables uh, synthetic biology companies to engineer new organisms uh, that can, as Kevin mentioned, uh, can be used to manufacture new materials, that can be used to, uh, to produce uh, novel therapeutics, or can be uh, utilized uh, to uh, perform a, a lot of different uh, functions for many different industries. Interesting. Yep. Kevin and Eugene, you both have spent a lot of time um, recently researching the state of the market, uh, the various players, both internationally and, uh, and domestically, in this particular uh, vertical. Can you tell us a little bit about the here and now? What is it that you find interesting, perhaps in research or in commercial application, uh, in, right now, in, in present day? Sure. I've used the word scale a couple of times already, and I think I'll probably use it a few more times during the rest of our conversation. The, uh, the scale at which the molecular biology work is taking place uh, that was, is enabled by the, the factors that Eugene just mentioned is, 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 uh, is kind of a common thread across um, companies that are being founded in synthetic biology. So uh, 20 years ago, uh, individual organisms were being engineered by individual scientists at the lab bench and were really sort of a uh, kind of a, a customer, a bespoke synthesis of this organism to do some useful task or some interesting task. Uh, now that one scientist at the bench has been incorporated you know, sort of artificially uh, through laboratory automation uh, into a very into high throughput uh, what some companies are calling foundries so that thousands of organisms can be made in parallel and tested in parallel to determine which of many in silico designs based upon these standardized genetic parts are giving organisms that uh, perform the task best, you know, have, uh, providing the highest yield of a material or some desired product. So we're talking about creating organisms mm -hmm. from, uh, from, a, from a layman's sense, from almost just pieces, pieces of, of DNA. Is, is that a, a simplified representation of what's going on? It's a little simplified. I, I would say that we're really augmenting organisms still. You know, there's been a few uh, examples in the scientific literature of entirely novel bacterial genomes having been synthesized and uh, you know, booted up, so to speak, inside of a, a bacterial cell. 
we're not talking about that so much at this present day. And I know that you're going to ask us about the future later. So let's leave it. We'll leave that for Fair that. Enough. There's a, a popular phrase uh, in synthetic biology is chassis organism. So there are organisms sort of onto which more functionalities are being installed, sort of like installing code, if you will, right, yeah. in the form of no, DNA sequences, sense. right? Um, and uh, these augmented organisms are receiving the instructions for entire synthetic pathways. It's not just one or two reactions that take place, but it could be 8, 10, 12 reactions that in sequence lead from some feedstock molecule to a, a molecule of some complexity that's a desired product. And the goal is always to do this at a scale and at an efficiency that's greater than how one sources that molecule now in the, in the marketplace. Uh, and can you talk to us a little bit about uh, what, what are these organisms that are getting these extra pieces of code installed onto them? What are they? What are they? What are they and what are they doing? Sure. Uh, well, uh, so what they're doing, first of all, and, and well, is mostly growing in large steel vats uh, or other sort of culture vessels. Um, and they're making their products by the same, you know, generally speaking, the same ways in which we've made microbial products, you know, throughout human history. Um, you know, ethanol, you know, for, uh, for beer and, and, and wine and things along those lines uh, are other examples of molecules made by organisms grown in, in quantities, right? Except that we're trying to expand the repertoire of the kinds of products that these organisms can make. Uh, which organisms? Um, uh, there are some, uh, you know, uh, E. coli is kind of the, uh, Escherichia coli is the, the bacterium that we know the most about and has been engineered the most often throughout the last 50 years. So that's kind of a foundational organism that people add genes to to make products. Uh, various species of yeast, in, you know, including brewer's yeast that people use in, in, in brewing, right, uh, is also being modified. And uh, yeast is interesting because uh, being a more complex organism than a bacterium, it has uh, the capacity to handle larger chunks of code and maybe to make more complex molecules. So it has, so it starts with a larger inherent code base, if you will, and so you can add. There's this, this less engineering that you might have to do to get to a certain product. The types of products that are being made range from, you know, today consumer-driven <coughs> products such as uh, new fabrics uh, made of spider silk, if you will, spider mm -hmm. silk protein that's been bioengineered by companies like Bolt French, soy protein that goes into uh, burgers like uh, the Impossible uh, Foods burger uh, that's available at White Castle, uh, some various White Castle outlets, uh, and uh, you know, new forms of flavors and fragrances or other types mm -hmm. of natural products which, are, uh, or which were historically derived from plants but very difficult and expensive to extract. Interesting. I've, I've actually uh, had the pleasure of consuming a, a, a few of these Impossible Burgers, and uh, no endorsement, not saying anything, uh, plus or minus, they, they taste great. Oh, I, I think they cool. taste really good. Right. I had no concept of the mm -hmm. fact they were right. generated through synthetic right. biology. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. So, yeah, so I think, uh, like Eugene said, you'll see products that are both consumer-facing, and you'll also see the use of synthetic biology will also be in some ways transparent to consumers because flavors and fragrances and other sort of components of larger products or more complex products will be made through biological means, just as they are chemically now. So I can certainly see the business motivation behind these these uh, these, or, these little organisms. They're, mm -hmm. they're creating more yield, perhaps are more efficient at it, and they're mm -hmm. targeted to deliver a, a very consistent end product. Um, There's also a controllability or uh, a... Um, uh, a, a reliability factor. So if you're, if, if, if the molecule of interest is a, that makes part of a scent or a flavor and you extract it from plants, you're dependent upon the seasonality of the availability of that plant. And if 
uh, if the if the harvest of that plant is not good this year then the cost of the raw material may go up uh, you may not be able to source it uh, you may not be able to source it you may have to buy it in bulk when it's available and then store it and so the ability to reduce reliance on that kind of seasonality and price fluctuations based on yield is another uh, economic contributor to uh, to, to the value of, of synthetic biology. Yeah, it certainly makes sense. Reduces a lot of the volatility associated with some That's of your right. main inputs if, mm-hmm. you're, if you're a manufacturer, for example. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So let me, I, I hate to harp on boring topics when we're talking about something so interesting, but are there any organizations or committees overseeing the use or perhaps uh, instituting rules on what can and cannot be added on to organisms mm-hmm. such that they can or cannot behave a certain way? So I, I think the answer to that depends in part on in which country you're talking, okay? In the United States, the regulatory regime for molecular biology products tends to focus more on regulating the product and less of on the process by which you get that product, okay? So, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> you know, there are uh, many crops in the United States are, are now genetically modified to have certain traits that make them pest resistant or drought resistant or resistant. Uh, uh, herbicide resistant, um, and there's a discussion about all of those things that goes on here. But for the most part, um, we, we've pretty seamlessly incorporated those things into uh, the agricultural or industrial, uh, you know, chain, if you will. It, overseas, there are different conversations that take place. Uh, you know, GMOs are a, a, a more difficult topic in Europe than they are in the United States, for instance. Okay, but who regulates what in the United States is not much different now than it was before genetic engineering. Um, it has to do really with the the product. Okay, so if the product is a food, it might be an FDA or a USDA level of regulation. Right? Um, so, if, for instance, um, there are companies that are now using uh, novel biological techniques to come up with um, other forms of cell protein that that are shaped and formed like meat products. Mm-hmm. And now, uh, because that's a food, uh, FDA is is investigating whether and how they should be regulating the production of this sort of cell mass based uh, forms of meat, so cultured meat, if you will. Right. right? If the product is a drug, then, uh, then the process by which the drug is made um, is inherently an FDA regulated thing. And there's a whole uh, protocol that's called CGMP for current good manufacturing processes that manufacturers of drugs have to adhere to in, in order to get the drugs uh, approved for, uh, for sale. Okay, and so uh, you know, if the product is a crop, it would be more of a USDA thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me also add uh, to, to what Kevin uh, stated, that uh, you know, largely the synthetic biology community and uh, companies uh, that comprise it have self-regulated themselves, I understand, and have an awareness of the biosecurity concerns around uh, synthesizing potential pathogens and things like that. So there is a uh, International Gene Synthesis Consortium, mm-hmm. uh, IGSC, which uh, comprises about four-fifths of the uh, gene synthesis capacity worldwide, and those members uh, screen the sequence orders that they get to identify any sort of regulated pathogen sequences or dangerous sequences, Interesting. and uh, try to avoid synthesizing uh, those sequences to the commercial uh, so there's some there's some some inherent level of oversight. Certainly, and, and as you said, some self uh, some self regulation as well. Uh, a lot of that is driven by self interest, right? That if you are the gene foundry that is discovered later to have made something that you wish they hadn't, uh, you know there are liability concerns um, that may right. end, that may result in the the end of your business, right? And so um, there's a, a sort of a, a self defensive position there as well. 
Mm-hmm. I see. You mentioned it was an international consortium. Let's talk a little bit about uh, just international interest in synthetic biology in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, in your research, uh, I read that you um, have found varying states of, uh, of progress uh, mm-hmm. internationally. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what countries are doing? Are, if there are, any di- are, are countries interested in different things? Are, is there one country that's particularly leading the charge in this field? Well, I would say that, uh, as in many areas of technology, broadly, uh, the United States is is sort of the, the current uh, sort of leader, if you will, in terms of uh, level of effort, uh, innovation, and uh, access uh, to capital to spin out discoveries from basic science, uh, you know, uh, laboratories in academia and other laboratories into startup companies, and that's it, and that shouldn't be a surprise to any of the listeners. The, the UK is uh, very prominent in synthetic biology as well, the, in, in large part because the, the talent base there is considerable. You know, it's important to remember that uh, it was British scientists that invented DNA sequencing in all three of its uh, manifestations, the, the Sanger sequencing that led to the Human Genome Project, next-gen sequencing, which is the foundation of Illumina's technology, uh, originally a British technology, uh, and now nanopore sequencing, um, and the you know the, the uh, Oxford nanopore is kind of the the, the world leader in in that. And Oxford mm-hmm. refers to its location uh, and its spin out from Oxford University. And of course, the uh, it was British scientists Watson and Crick that discovered the structure of DNA in the, the first place. The double helix right. model. So um, so tremendous talent base there. And the the British also have a very uh, organized um, from the government on down uh, way of thinking about how basic discoveries in molecular biology and synthetic biology will be translated into the economic sphere um, and they have a, a national plan for how to organize themselves and how to accomplish this uh, with some level of, of uh, government funding, uh, public-private partnerships, um, and, uh, and, and then just s- straight-up business founding. Right. Mm-hmm. So this leads to my next point, opportunities and threats associated with synthetic biology. Why is it important for us to pay attention to uh, this field? Why is it important for us to be involved? Uh, and what are the dangers of uh, being left behind? So in terms of concern, the synthetic biology technology toolbox, if you will, is very powerful. And uh, you know, just as you can make, you can use metallurgy to make girders to build buildings and, uh, and novel metals to make our cell phones run and things of that sort, I mean, you can also use metals to build weapons and submarines and battleships and what have you. Um, so synthetic biology is a, is a manufacturing platform and a discovery platform. And like all other powerful technologies, you know, can be used uh, you know, by malefactors as well as by people who want to make good and useful things. And so, so paying close attention to, um, to how people are using synthetic biology, I think is a very good thing. All of us as concerned citizens and you know, uh, educated lay people uh, about technology broadly uh, should add this to the list of things that the, that they're conscious of and, and, and read news about and, and stay up on. Yes. So I would add to, to that that uh-huh. you know, generally scope and importance of uh, the bioeconomy and biology-driven manufacturing mm-hmm. is going to be increasingly, it's going to be growing or is growing and increasingly significant. Uh, and so from an economic competitiveness standpoint, it's very important for us to uh, pay attention to what's happening on, in, in synthetic biology. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, synthetic biology, in addition to sort of dual-use nature, uh, can have very significant implications for response to outbreak and you know response to uh, infectious disease. And there is there is the opportunity for us to leverage this type of uh, capability to be able to uh, support. Uh, 
That's absolutely correct, um, and that's, that's that's worth saying one more time. I think the 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 power of the synthetic biology technology platform is uh, is ready made harnessable for response to public health threats, and so it's. You know, while uh, you know, there's some press about the the concern about what should happen if, uh, if people with malintent uh, use it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also a tremendously potent uh, platform for discovery and manufacture for people who are on the good side, right? So who want to uh, build and uh, and and manufacture uh, therapeutics and diagnostics and vaccines against um, new and emerging threats. So had we been five years ahead of where we are now uh, during the Ebola outbreak, the impact of the Ebola outbreak might have been less. We just weren't quite far enough ahead to be able to push uh, the diagnostics and the, the, uh, the potential therapeutics forward as fast as we could have uh, uh, had we been a little bit more uh, farther down the development pathway in the field generally. Interesting. So it sounds a lot like Synthetic biology applications are influenced, reliant upon at least, uh, some foundational elements. Uh, so maybe an architecture of, of things that have to exist prior to an actual capability. And I, I've noticed that in your research, both you, you both of you have sort of outlined uh, what a reference architecture for capabilities looks like. Can you walk us through some of the core components of that architecture? Sure. So some of the building blocks uh, at, the, at the base of this architecture, if you will, um, are, are shared by molecular biology laboratories generally. So there's a there's fair amount of instrumentation uh, involved in um, the automation of laboratory tasks. Uh, you have to be able to grow organisms. Uh, you have to be able to handle them in a sterile fashion so that you don't contaminate your work and things along those lines. The next layer up from there would be um, the, uh, the capabilities that Eugene spoke of earlier. Uh, the ability to both read DNA very quickly in high volumes at low cost, and to s- then turn around and synthesize and write and write it. Okay, so to mm-hmm. be able to read and write the code at scale, both powered by that automation and then fed back into the automation, in the next layer up, in the construction of larger pieces of DNA that control that contain larger parts of code, mm-hmm. um, and then the insertion, the building of that into these chassis organisms that you can then uh, uh, test in large numbers for the the iterations that give you the highest yields. Okay. And these layers you refer to in this architecture, how uh, mm-hmm. how mature are they? Are these are these you know your we Eugene talked a little bit about how uh, sequencing technology has has gotten us pretty far, and in mm-hmm. fact the cost of sequencing and analyzing sequences mm-hmm. has been driven down. Um, is that something we've seen across all the layers you've just just, just described, sort of the ease with which you can access some of these capabilities? So I would say that, you know there are um, there are companies that are right now moving out in what we would call the full stack of this architecture. Some addressing multiple verticals or multiple industry applications, and some are focused on particular industries. So um, uh, the capability is there now to do this work. There are some bottlenecks. Um, the cost of synthesizing DNA has not dropped as precipitously, as quickly, as the cost of sequencing or reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for some companies and for some institutions, uh, the ability to write DNA has become their bottleneck. I see. Well, to uh, address that, there are a number of uh, both academic institutions and now startup companies that are moving out to attempt to um, revolutionize and drop by several orders of magnitude the cost of synthesizing a base pair or sticking two bases of the DNA code together. And when that happens, then uh, 
all of these companies will really be off to the races. I want to add to uh, what, what Kevin said in terms of the overall architecture, that an important element of the architecture, essentially in the same layer as the synthesis and sequencing capabilities, for example, would be uh, the information, uh, the data sets, the reference data sets, the parts, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, both in silico as well as uh, in uh, batch or in physical form, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, that are used to be put, that are used in in, uh, in the engineering of the of the new pathways in our organisms, and uh, the reuse uh, as well as the design and modification of those parts uh, are important intellectual asset, uh, and IP asset of companies that are playing in this. That's right. So just as uh, software is no longer written de novo, new, every time a new particular algorithm or function is needed, there are libraries that have been created that people can draw from and make calls to. Similarly, in synthetic biology, new uh, uh, existing functions are not, um, they're not recreated, they're, they're not redesigned every time. Um, they're banked. Mm -hmm. And so you can draw parts and modules and functions, if you will, from these banks and assemble them in new and interesting ways. Uh, and that bank of capability just keeps growing as these parts are designed and um, as they're used, they're understood better and all of that knowledge is being stored and built upon going forward through time. Interesting. Kevin, Eugene, you guys have done an excellent job uh, laying the foundations for what you have uncovered in your research in the synthetic biology industry. Let's now switch gears and play the crystal ball game where we all get to be futurists. <laughs> Based on what you've seen so far in your market analysis and your research, what can we expect, um, at both as a population and as uh, researchers or engineers in this space, uh, over the next, say, 10 to 15 years? Sure. Um, so I'm going to give now a shameless plug for a blog post that I wrote about a year ago. Um, if you go to bnext.org and look at our blog, um, last year I wrote a, a blog post uh, based on uh, work from Harvard and University of Washington and several other places in which um, uh, synthetic biology, particularly the DNA synthesis part, the literal chemistry of building the molecules, is being uh, applied to a different purpose, not to an industrial materials purpose, but to just data storage flat out as, as a goal in itself. Mm -hmm. um, and I won't belabor that here because people can read about that, but um, when with a precipitous drop in the ability to write data into DNA, uh, people are now already looking at algorithms for storing information in DNA because it is a tremendously stable and um, and, uh, and very uh, compact way of storing data. And so uh, getting information in and out of it quickly, for the time being, won't be as fast as uh, getting data in and out of an electronic computer. Uh, maybe someday it will be, but- um, Could get but, better. But it could get, it could, it, but it, it will certainly get better over time. Right. Um, and if, if you doubt that DNA is stable, Remember that we have sequenced the genomes of Neanderthals from bones unearthed in caves. So if you happen to take better care of your DNA than that, it will last, you know, hundreds of thousands of years beyond the kind of the practical timescales that humans live in, right? Right. Uh, so, um, so, it, it, but it's it's stable on that order, uh, and 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 again, very compact. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. I will add that uh, you know, just very recently over the last couple of years. We've seen uh, dramatic advances in genome editing in the form of CRISPR, and the uh, applications of that, uh, ranging from diagnostics to novel antibiotics to, uh, to 
the therapeutic applications uh, for rare disease, et cetera, are dramatic. And we're very early today in terms of seeing those uh, capabilities come to market. But certainly 10 to 15 years from now, uh, there certainly exists the possibility that uh, some of those may be available. Interesting. The, uh, the comparison is an imperfect one. But people who've listened uh, to us for the, the length up to this point will have noticed, you know, um, uh, us drawing parallels between information technology and DNA, right? Um, we've talked about reading and writing it, and now Eugene has just brought up the tremendously important uh, function of editing right. the information. So, um, and to add to that analogy, you also referred to uh, organisms as having code that you could add on to. That's right. That's right. So to a first approximation, uh, these are useful analogies, and, uh, and, I, and I hope that uh, your listeners may, you know, may, may benefit from that. Kevin and Eugene, I want to thank you both for your time. This has been extremely informative. Uh, to our listeners, thank you for listening to the very end. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about the work that BNEX is doing, please visit their website, www.bnex.org. If you have any questions about InQtel or any of the research that we do here, visit us at iqt.org. Again, thank you all. We'll catch you next time. Thanks, Michelle.